0: No no, we, we, we've got, we've got, we've got, done. Let's where, where, where we've got to. And
1: No pudding I'm afraid. I've got that's some, ginger. Right. I didn't do pudding. But you said that pudding. I cover the bottom end, which is good. On the bass? Yeah. Just on bass guitar? Yeah, got yeah. The ginger oh, snaps. Yeah. That's it. I'm Sam from Tong,
2: And I'm Becky.
1: And this is our Dead Club podcast. Uh, we've been together as a band for ooh, around 15 years now and we embarked upon this project because we wanted to explore our culture and others' culture's relationship to death and dying and make an album about it.
2: So what we did was we went and did loads of interviews with people that we, in, we admired or inspired by that we thought would be interesting to talk to about death also probably important to say that we started working on this project long before coronavirus was a word that people even kind of knew, so um, it feels like these conversations are even more important, I suppose, now. Um, Anyway, this interview is one that Sam recorded with AC Grayling at his office in London. He is a British philosopher and writer. Um, He's master of the New College of the Humanities and... He writes about really big life issues, death, war, torture, um, and this is what happened when we went to meet him.
1: I'm here with AC Grayling at the New College of the Humanities to discuss with him death and our culture's relationship to death. Um, AC Grayling, hello. Hi. It's really nice to meet you. That's uh, great, welcome. Um, I've read a few of your books, and uh, actually around, oh, it must be, about ten years ago, now there were two books: "The Meaning of Things" and "What Is Good," and they really were my introduction to philosophy because they're, they're beautiful books. And really, my impression of them was that it's sort of the history of philosophy, um, but in a very accessible style. You know, I really got a sense of what these great minds over the years thought. And you seemed like a you're a kind of well of knowledge of the great thinkers of history, and you teach philosophy and i thought you'd be a fantastic person to speak to about this subject and you must have some brilliant insights um i'm also really struck by the fact that you you're very rooted in reason but you seem to have a very deep compassionate streak Uh, and i think especially with this well in life in general that seems important but especially when it comes to the subject of of death um how can reason and philosophy help us to accept the reality of our own mortality, do you think?
0: There is a long and rich and, uh, and very fascinating uh, tradition of discussion about this, in particular in antiquity, in later antiquity, in the Hellenic and Roman periods, for example, a number of people, Cicero, Seneca, uh, others, m- people who were part of the Stoic tradition, people like Aurelius and Epictetus, who addressed this question. And um, they did it in a way that has to a certain extent been lost to view. It's a great pity that people don't read these folks enough and think a bit about what they've had to say because what they do say is very, very profound and very helpful. And what they say is this. Death is inevitable. They didn't have a view that we would um, survive death in some form, so have an afterlife, which for quite a few people, you know, is a rather frightening thought, having to start all over again as a new boy maybe or girl and, and, uh, you know, maybe uh, carrying bad karma with you or, you know, stains on your soul. So they saw death as an end. They saw it as a grateful release from things like suffering and old age and limitation. But they also thought that if you were to understand the difference between being dead and the living act of dying, which could be painful and and frightening and awkward, if you could see that distinction and recognize the state of being dead as being nothing to fear, no different from a dreamless sleep, no different from the non-existence before your birth, then you would be liberated from the the fear of death and you would be liberated thereby from all fear because there is nothing uh, to to, um, be afraid of even, for example, in the cruelty of a tyrant because you can escape it. You can commit suicide. You know, it was regarded at that period in history as an honourable thing to do and, uh, you know, a wonderful way out of problems if, if you so chose. Nowadays, we think people must be disturbed if they commit suicide or, uh, you know, that they, they're giving up on life too early. And, of course, there's this powerful religious tradition that your life is not for you to give away. Mm. Uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to leave it up to natural courses or um, at the adventitious... So they, they, as they say, to learn to die is to learn to philosophize. That is, you get wisdom from the fact that you realize there is nothing to fear from death and therefore there is nothing to fear from anything. And what you should concentrate therefore is on all the business of living. In fact, Spinoza, much, much later on, very much in the same vein, said, the meditation of the wise person is a meditation on life, not on death, because death is nothing to us.
1: I find those ideas really powerful. I've, even in the last few weeks where I've been planning these interviews and reading, um, I've found a kind of um, appreciation of life creeping in, that, that in, in a more intense way than was there before and this is a subject i have engaged with quite a lot um and in relation to some of what you were saying there i i sometimes feel a bit confused in the sense that i have a part of my brain is very very rational i really believe you know i, I around um the time that um richard dawkins wrote the god delusion you wrote against all gods i i, I really find that Idea of reason above all, and the striving for truth, really important. I think it's so important for for society and for the development of humanity, really. And yet, there's this part of my brain that can't, doesn't seem to quite be able to shake this idea of an overarching meaning to things, and perhaps there's something more to it. What what do you think is going on there?
0: Well, okay, let, let's creep up on this a little bit, uh, yeah. uh, approach it carefully. The first thing to say is that when one does think, uh, really you know, get down to thinking about death and the place of death in our experience, the mm. experience of life, we notice that if it's right that death is nothing to us individually, I'm not going to experience my own death, mm. uh, my own dying, yes, yeah. but not my own being dead, then that means that death uh, as it as I uh, experience it, is other people's death. Mm. I experience death as grief and loss. I, I experience it as the, the the page in the new in the interesting book which suddenly disappears and it's no longer there. And I, and the nostalgia, the the lack, the the loss, the sorrow, yeah. uh, is, is what my experience is all about. That's one thought. The other thought is this: it's a not uncommon experience for people who, in their younger life are very hypochondriacal. So they're always mm. feeling their pulse and thinking they're on the brink of dying and you know they, they get horrible scares. Until the day they realize that actually they're not afraid of illness and death. They're afraid of not achieving something. Mm. This is a displacement activity. And that the minute that you, you latch on to life with both hands and start to live it and do things that matter to you and you feel that you're flourishing, uh, then somehow that fear goes away. This is why... It's a an, another common experience among much older people that they don't fear death at all. Mm. They come to a kind of acceptance, a kind of plateau of, of understanding of and acceptance of their mortality, which liberates them from that kind of anxiety. And that could in many cases be that they've reached a compromise with themselves about their lives or they're satisfied with what they've done or they've realized that, all the frailties and limitations of a human existence are such that they can't blame themselves for wherever they are. And, and so they come to a point of acceptance. And that is a very deep and, and wonderful thing, which is why very, very few elderly people leave life kicking and screaming against the act of doing so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. For, I mean, I think... Um so I describe myself as a highly sensitive person and whether um, whether that's down to a sort of genetic predisposition or um, my parents are having a slightly difficult time when I was younger and perhaps some of those experiences have affected me. But my life has definitely, I experience it, I experience it as a bit of a roller coaster of kind of quite intense emotions, some very difficult and some really wonderful. Um, and... I think it's that is partly what draws me to these kind of more metaphysical ideas, but also to this idea of reason and that there's a sort of deep deep scientific truth to things and I suppose it it feels like it's important that people have access to these ideas and so you you've written a book called The Good Book, which is kind of a secular Bible which i i haven't read i'm really it's on my list of things I'm really looking forward to reading it but um um within that book you must cover the subject of death you know oh, yeah. what, what's your advice what's your ad- advice for people who are grieving for example
0: well th- th- you know th- there's a um, interesting and uh, striking a set of considerations in um, something that Cicero wrote about death he wrote a dialogue in which he talks about how uh, if you allow grief to overcome you to the point where you are incapacitated and you can't live your life and carry out your responsibilities, then you're letting yourself down as well as the person who, uh, who's died and for whom you're grieving. Okay. Because think about it this way. If you imagine yourself being dead, but but nevertheless capable of having the thought, how would you like things to be for those you've left behind and who grieve for you? Well naturally of course it would matter that they, they missed you and that they do grieve for you but not to the extent that it would impede their possibility of happiness or their getting on with life. Now let's take a step back here and, and, and notice something. This is a story I like to tell people often because it, it's quite striking. The The story of of Solon's meeting with King Croesus of Lydia. And Croesus was so rich and and he was a king and so he used to think that everybody would think he was the most sort of blessed of individuals. And he tried to get confirmation of this from Solon. He said, who do you think is the happiest person in the world? And Solon said, oh, I, I know some people back in Athens. And Croesus was very cross. What, you know, you choose a commoner over me? Solon said, yeah, because I, I don't know, you know, how things are with you, but I do know one thing, which is that you should think very carefully about what would genuinely make you happy. And whatever that is, the reason for thinking about it is the brevity of life. He pointed out that life is less than a 1,000 months long. Do the maths. If you live until you're 80, 12 times 80 is 960. And I often say to people, unless you party a lot, you're going to be asleep for 300 of those months. That's quite a thought. And probably another 300, you're going to be busy at a bus stop or in Tesco or something like that. So 300 months to live the life that you should be living or want to live or doing the things that you are passionate about. And when you put it like that, it sounds terribly little. It sounds rather frightening. Although, in fact, 300 months is about 25 years, so it's not too bad. But then I point out, so having teed people up for this, I say to them, actually, time doesn't really exist. What exists is experience. And it's very easy to point this out to people. Go somewhere for a long weekend with uh, somebody you really care about, Paris as it might be, somewhere romantic. And it's wonderful while you're there. You're there forever and ever. It's eternal, that moment. When you get back from it afterwards, it's gone like a flash. So what does that tell you? It tells you that, that time is very elastic around experience and what matters is experience. I also point out that if you did exactly the same thing at exactly the same time every single day, never did anything different, read exactly the same words on the same page at the same breakfast Mm -hmm. cereal, you did this your entire life, then you would have lived one day. So you can see that that the idea is not so much the length of life, but the quality. Mm -hmm. Not so much, you know, what, what you do, but how you do it and what it feels like to do it. And that is what it is to live. So If it's 20 years, like a brave soldier in war, or if it's 90 years, like, you know, your beloved granny, or whatever it might be, it doesn't matter. The answer to the question, what was that life like? What was it like to live that life? That answer is the important one. Mm. The fact that somebody has lived, the fact that there has been life, the fact that it was used well, those are the things that matter. So, you know, from the point of view of... of, um, thinking how we're going to deal with other people's deaths we can console ourselves with reflections on that if those lives were good we can grieve for the fact that a life has been lost but also that a life has been lost that in itself didn't fulfill its purpose you can feel very sorry about that for the, for the person and it can bear on you and your thinking about your own life and what you should do so that when you reach the point of death you can say I
1: lived Hmm. I find that um that way of thinking very inspiring and um, that's part of the reason I enjoy reading your books and and have returned to you perhaps when I need a bit of geeing up about life because I need a bit of a a bit of encouragement but also with with a sort of feeling that I'm this person knows what they're talking about and they've done their research and um it's based in reason and which i find very comforting funnily enough martin who's um one of the guys in the band sent me some documents earlier on today which is related to the thing you said about months it's actually a it's actually a chart of all the weeks in your life Mm -hmm. all all in sort of printed off in a grid as little squares and i was thinking i'm thinking about printing it off and putting it on the wall and ticking the weeks off as they go because it looks like a shockingly small amount. Well, it is a shockingly small amount of weeks. So, yeah, those are really, really wonderful ideas.
0: Well, what you don't want to do is to add to the sense of depression that we all, you know, sometimes feel. Shadows are going to fall across life uh, often enough. Um, we're We're going to find ourselves disappointed with ourselves sometimes. Sometimes the struggle seems very uphill. The important thing is not to be bowed down by it uh, even indeed in a way to treasure those things because of what they teach us and because of the contrast they give us with things that are good and positive mm. as well. So, uh, we, we, you know, we, we carry a burden of grief for our own mistakes and losses. And we can be very nostalgic about our own lives and we can think that we've let ourselves down somehow. But if... I think if a person is very forward-facing, if they think, um, you know, look, th- this is not something which... I'm stained with, uh, so that I'm always going to regret it. It's always going to hold me back and down. Instead, one should think, as the ancient Greeks did about these things. They thought that uh, if you make a mistake or something bad happens or there's a negative, treat it as a bad shot. That is, you aimed your arrow at the target, but you missed. So how do you deal with that? You aim better next time, Mm. next time you hit the target. And that's the way to make up for things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I teach a guitar to children in schools, to primary school children. That's an idea I find that I'm constantly trying to help them accept this idea of, you know, mistakes being actually quite a focusing thing and a good thing. And that's, mm-hmm. in the mistake lies the greatest opportunity for... Mm-hmm. That's the exact bit where you need to do the work and then it's going to make you better. So I love I love that idea. Um, I'm, I'd like to go a little bit back to this idea of... Um, a sort of a mindset based in reason versus a a mindset based in a more religious or perhaps magical thinking kind of way Uh, and discuss a few, uh, discuss it around some particular kind of choices so I recently read um, a book by Atul Gawande, Being Mortal and I think what's interesting about that book is that he, he researched palliative care and end of life and I get the impression it hadn't really been researched a great deal. And he found that from a scientific point of view, um, people can have a qualitatively better experience at the end of their lives if the focus is taken away from a kind of trying to help people live longer and, and the focus is on their well-being, but in the process also found that they lived longer. Mm. Um, so that seems like f- through a very sort of rational way of looking at it, the outcome has been positive on what many people would describe as a kind of spiritual level mm-hmm. and what do you think about that
0: okay if I'm allowed to use the word spiritual in a non you know mystical or transcendence yeah then I think the spiritual aspect of our lives is by far the most important mm. and by by spiritual I, I mean the complex of our emotional and intellectual responses to things yeah now our emotions are uh, usually contrasted with reason, so the rational on the non-rational, of which the irrational is only part. An uh, irrational part of us is where you contradict yourself or you, you accept paradoxes, and okay. of course contradictions and paradoxes make it very difficult to do anything of genuine, uh, genuinely productive kind. But the non-rational part of ourselves, the emotional, spiritual part of ourselves, is tremendously important. And tends to drive most of what we do Mm. the point of reason is to educate direct modify uh, restrain those of our emotions that are negative or destructive and to promote and foster and celebrate those of our emotions like for example kindness and feelings of tenderness and and love um, which are good and and which are positive there are many reasons why this is so one of the central ones is that um, as social animals a key aspect of our existence is our relationships. And so to try to foster good relationships, to be very attentive to other people, to really hear what they say, to, to try to get some insight and understanding of the diversity of experiences, interests, desires, needs that other people have, and to be able to respond appropriately. These these are things that make emotional life good and rich. So that the, the place of reason obviously in the sciences or logic or mathematics or thinking about philosophical problems, reason, pure, cool reason needs to be uh, applied in ways that I- I- escape the sometimes potentially beclouding nature of emotion. Mm-hmm. But in, in the living of our lives and in our response to very important things, to the birth of our children or, or to the needs of our the, those we love or in in our own facing our own deaths or facing the deaths of others what reason can do for us there is it can help us manage our emotions help to coach and direct them indeed the whole point of education you know when you think of little children infants are little anarchists so what we're trying to do when we help to raise them is to help them manage those negative emotions which are counterproductive and to foster those those emotions which are, are good and this is this is using reason to to direct them it's not as though reason is um, so far the opposite of emotion that we should try to be emotionless, like Mr Spock on Star Trek. Uh, that, that, that doesn't work because our, our drivers, the, the things that um, make us do the things that, that are important, that make us reach out for the things we value, are going to be our emotional commitments. So we should, we should see the connection between reason and emotion uh, in a much more positive light and not fear our emotions unless they're ungoverned, unless they're wild, unless they're crude. But then it's the job of reason to refine them.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I've been so aware over the last year or two of social media and the way that people are interacting, just for example, about uh, left-wing versus right-wing politics. And I, I really sense that a lot of people are, they really they really get stuck in an emotional reaction, and they think that that reaction is the truth of the situation and It feels like reason if we can all learn to use reason it's a it's a life skill really isn't it? If we can learn to use reason a little more, we might be able to bridge some of those gaps and get a better perspective of what um what people are. Well, know, that's right, really that, that, that's from. what
0: education is meant to be about. I mean, the point about emotion is that our emotional responses are instantaneous. Yeah. So on Twitter, for example, you see something that enrages you and, you know, in a flash you've uh, tweeted something which is really, uh, and, and could be a, a, an ill-considered or a, at least unconsidered response. Yeah. The, the the point about reason is that uh, it takes that little bit longer. You've got to reflect. Sometimes you've got to mull, mull over something and let both your conscious and subconscious... Minds, you know, get stuck into it and and sort it out a little bit before before you can do or say the right thing. Reason is naturally connected with reflection, and you think about reflection, you know, that requires a little bit of time, a bit of space, to allow thoughts to develop for second thoughts, which are always better than you know instant reactions, mm-hmm. uh, and and therefore to help you to direct those emotional responses
1: in the right way. Yeah, you spoke very. Um well I, I really i really related to your speech on euthanasia you spoke to the oxford union about euthanasia and a um that seems to me a subject where people have a very emotional reaction and um again that was what can you talk a little bit about that and the way you yeah. see that subject
0: well firstly we need to bear in mind that the word euthanasia means a good death mm. Uh, You know, so one that's uh, not frightening, which is is not the result of choking to death, not being able to breathe or feeling terrible pain and so on. You know, there are awful ways to die, just as there are uh, wonderful and easy ways to die. So when we talk about euthanasia, we mean uh, a good death, an easy death, an easy departure from life. Now, when people are are suffering irremediably or, or terribly it is a very very great kindness i think to to help those people to be released from that situation especially if they themselves want it or perhaps only if they themselves want it i don't think you know anybody should be helped to die or or made to die if they don't want to you pointed out earlier in talking about um, hospice uh, treatment and palliative care that the focus on keeping people alive uh, can be an issue and you know Very often, people whose lives and therefore whose sufferings are prolonged are so because their families don't want to let them go. And they hang on to them and, um, you know, really that's an unkind thing. Whereas if they were allowed to go gracefully and easily, and we have the power to do this. Physician assisted uh, dying can make dying a good and pleasant thing, could make it a euthanasia. People associate with the idea of euthanasia, you know, nasty people creeping about in darkened hospital corridors, you know, going to inject somebody who doesn't want to die. And that's not the point at all. That's not the point at all. This has to be something that an individual himself or herself wants. They have a clear-minded, settled resolve. Uh, if that's the case, we should honour it. It's the most terrible kind of condescension and, and, and sort of, you know, um, paternalism to say to somebody, no. we're not going to help you to die you've just got to lie there and suffer Mm -hmm. until this natural process uh, releases you we're kinder to our dogs I mean that's you know sometimes the point is put that roughly I for example am a member of Dignitas so you can be a member of this organisation if something happened and you got into a situation of terminal illness or terminal suffering you know you have a resource you can go and do something about it not that I intend to or, or particularly want to but knowing that I could do it, that I have access to it, is a comfort. That yeah. I don't feel that I'm going to be on a gurney, you know, in the basement of a hospital somewhere and struggling, you know, and, and dying in that way. But um, we made it possible for people to have access to that kind of care because after all, it is the ultimate palliation, isn't it? It's the ultimate care to be helped to die peacefully and calmly. Yeah. Maybe at a time of our choosing, maybe when we've got our loved ones around us and, you know, we can say goodbye properly and and not be dragged away from them by too much, you know, uh, sort of opiate, mm. uh, not being able to say goodbye properly, uh, having to live with the terrible indignity perhaps of being incontinent and so reliant on other people. You know, there, there is a, a sense of the dignity that an individual has, our respect for it, the autonomy of a person making a choice, about how and when they die you know those things are important to me uh, and um for that reason i support very much organizations like dignity and dying yeah. wh- which campaign for uh, physician assisted death
1: yeah it feels deeply right on some level that you, as far as possible you should be able to own those choices yourself mm-hmm. therefore for the individual to make um i'd like to i'd like to talk to you about the death penalty um, partly because it confuses me a little bit, the death penalty. The first reason being that it doesn't, the actual death itself doesn't seem like much of a punishment to the individual because once, once the sentence has been carried out, they're no longer suffering. They're not, you know, aware of what's happening. So it feels like it, Potentially a punishment that punishes the family and the people who know the person more. Although I appreciate also it can be very challenging when people are held in detention for years upon end. That really is suffering. What's your viewpoint on the death penalty?
0: Well, I'm I'm against it in in principle. I mean, I don't think society should turn murderer uh, because somebody else has has been a murderer. Um, You know, taking a life in that that deliberate way uh, is intrinsically uh, in itself uh, a very questionable activity as you correctly say it's not as serious a punishment as many many years in prison so there are some horrible people who've done terrible things vile things uh, and we feel that part of um, getting closure dealing with this uh, punishing somebody uh, deterring other people from doing it perhaps even Hoping that 20 years in prison might make this person think and behave differently, and then they might have some sort of a life afterwards. All those considerations come into the, uh, you know, into the calculation about how we should deal with very serious crime and vile crime. And I speak as somebody who has had, uh, you know, my my sister was a murder victim, and um, I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, the families, and friends, and you know those those who've loved a person who's been murdered. They are as much, you know, a, a victim nearly as the person whose whole life has been stolen away from them by this mm. horrible kind of act because you as a member of such a family will never ever forget that fact and it's, a, mm. it's something which is part of the, the whole of your life. Now you react to that and respond to it, uh, you know, is, is a matter that requires thought and, and commitment. The person who commits a murder and we don't know, in the case of my, of my sister, who the murderer was, or somebody was put on trial but acquitted. We, 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 you know, we, we, we might have the view, as, as some relatives of murder victims do, that they want retribution, they want this to be noticed. They want somebody to pay for having done a thing which is so horrible and cruel. Mm-hmm. So there is a retributive aspect to punishment as well as... Uh, deterrent one or keeping society safe or hoping that you could recover that person for a more useful life later Uh, and you know that's justifiable, it's understandable the psychological agony of of losing somebody in that way but to kill that person I don't know that that is I I, I think that the the sheer crudity of that form of of Mm. revenge doesn't do us any justice doesn't do us as a civilised community any justice and if you consider the fact that too many people are put to death uh, on death row who subsequently turn out to be innocent, I mean, you know, just one such person is mm. too many. Yeah. And yet, when you look at the numbers, you think to yourself, miscarriages of justice happen, and this cannot be where way a just society deals with itself by taking that kind of risk.
1: Yeah. I'm very sorry to hear about your sister's death. I didn't know of that and I thank you very much for speaking so thoughtfully about that i found it quite moving as well to again hear that that compassion running through your thought processes and i think that's so important for all of us to em- embrace that sort of compassionate viewpoint
0: let me say one thing uh, about that if i may and that is for for a very long time after it happened i didn't speak about it and and the reason f- for it was that it was slightly more it was even in a way Worse if it's if it's possible for that, because my um, uh, mother, who had been ill, very ill at the time uh, with a heart problem, uh, uh, also died b- b- because of this event. I mean, she was mm. so shocked and upset and stressed, and so this was a double tragedy in the family and very very devastating for my my father. Imagine he lost his wife and his daughter. This happened in Africa because we used to live in Africa, and um, my uh, older brother, who's uh, you know very very dear to me. Uh, was out there at the time and he had to help my father and arrange, you know, funerals and things and he had to get me, I was back in the UK and he had to get me out there so he had to book an aeroplane. I mean, imagine doing all those things in the midst of this awful double tragedy. And so for a very long time afterwards it was also shocking and, and difficult to think about that I, I never used to talk about it or tell people until, you know, maybe about 20 years afterwards because we are talking about something that happened a long time ago. And I realised, you know, so many people think, think of, of people in war zones in Syria or Afghanistan, you know, who lose lots of relatives or perhaps their whole family. Think of people in places of conflict. Think of the fact that it is a, a, a regular, commonplace feature of all our lives that we're going to lose somebody we really care about, one way or another. So, in fact, the, the, the presence of grief, the presence of loss in life is a, a significant and um, you know, unavoidable fact that we have to address and we have to respond to. Mm. How we respond to makes a very great difference to who we are yeah. and what we, what we succeed in doing, either in the way of how we live our lives or what we can do with other people. And so it came to seem to me that it's a good thing to, to say uh, you know this has ha- happened to me, I know it happens to all of us, so if it's happening to you now, then know that i I know I, I understand how things are with you yeah. and I think you know it's so difficult to, isn't it to be to express your sympathy that you really feel for somebody who's in that terrible pain of, of grief after they've just yeah. lost somebody and and if you're able to say to them, and mean it and they know you mean it that you that you do have a bit of insight into how things are with them yeah. then that's one of the few things that
1: can help in that kind of case. And it helps me because I, I've often found myself um, in the presence of someone who's bereaved and essentially just being afraid to say something and not feeling quite a sort of swell of love and compassion for them but mm. I haven't always said something mm. and just just hearing you somebody who's actually been through that in such a difficult way express what you just expressed gives me a little bit of courage to think well what you know i mean obviously it's from a certain perspective it's a little bit embarrassing that, that that i consider this an issue you know that i find that difficult because in that situation they're going through something far far more difficult than i'm going through but i guess a lot of people feel that discomfort and embarrassment and would like to reach out and if we can start to create a language that we can share to help us help each other support each other that seems, seems like a really good thing
0: i agree with you you know what, what one of the things that we could learn uh reflect share with what one another is um really useful uh practical ways of of uh, of being helpful to other people perhaps when, when all this happened in, in our family and my father and brother and i were you know like uh, beached Dolphins you know left by by a high tide of of grief and staggering around and very dazed and really not knowing what one day we went out for a walk and when we came back we found uh, a cake tin on the doorstep of the house. Somebody baked us a cake.
1: that was so touching mm, thank you that's yeah. a that's a lovely lovely that you shared that um so. Just to finish off, I I was wondering if I want to if I want to explore some of the ideas that you've discussed. You know, if I want to go to some great philosophers or or modern books, could you sort of could you give me three places I could go to study this more to to find ways to help myself and to help other people? Do you know?
0: I I would suggest the following: that in one way. The question about death and the place of death in life. So the twofold consideration: one is that uh, we may, we all definitely will, um, have the experience of dying, and we may have a an uncomfortable experience or, or a comfortable one. So to be prepared for that, to be consoled by the fact that it's not going to be, you know, forever that that's going to be happening, that there are ways that you might be able to palliate it. So that's one thought, and that being dead, at one's own state of death is nothing to one that's that's you know it's it's in we we never die (laughs) but life is an eternal thing because you don't know that we're dead that death really is about other people's death it's about grief and so and so how we cope with that how we include that in our lives how we respond to it in in ourselves and and in other people that's much more uh, a, a thing to think about therefore the way to think about death is to think about life the way, the, the way to approach the, the fact of our mortality, the fact that we have a, a you know limited uh, amount of time, which we expand and make valuable and add quality to by how we use that time, how we live it, what we do with it. That is the thing that we should be thinking about and concentrating on. So the, the seemingly paradoxical answer to the question, how should we think about and prepare for the, the fact of death, our own and others' death, is think about life yeah. and live it.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Um, briefly, that, that makes me think of, there are two questions we've been asking everyone we, we speak to, and the first is, what do you feel your culture, by which I mean, how, however you interpret your culture, uh, what do you feel your culture does well in relation to death?
0: Well, I think uh, um, if I think of the, the, the world, the society that I live in at the moment, Uh, and and separate that from the question of what subculture one belongs to (laughs) in in society I think we handle it not very well at all in the following way we all try desperately or most of us seem to try desperately to live as long as possible to be as young as possible for as long as possible to get down to the gym to have a bit of plastic surgery to not think about death to avoid it uh, to sequester it away it's into a corner of life unlike our forebears in the human story who for whom death was a very present thing it happened in the community it happened at home it happened you know far too often tragically with children many of whom didn't survive childhood so it was a, it was a, a, a very present experience in people's lives what we do now is we we shut it off we've put it into a corner behind a screen somewhere and uh, we've turned the, the process of dealing with it, disposing of the body, going through the rituals and what have you, um, we put it into um, you know, uh, the hands of professionals and we don't do it ourselves. There are certain cultures, like for example in the Jewish culture where um, you know family and friends get together for a, a set number of nights and, and uh, can mourn together. Um, in Ireland, you know, have an absolute terrific party, get plastered and really let it all go, you know, all your emotions go. Different ways of, of dealing with it. Um, there are different ways of bringing people together to give mutual support around the death of, of people we care about. They're done better uh, than in standard sort of British-American type society. Mm. We, 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 we try to bracket it off far too much. And we don't think about it people tend to die in a hospital bed rather than at home and we lose sight of the, of, of the fact that the, that people who are dying, pe- people who are ill people who know, who feel that death is coming or people who feel ready to die uh, don't think uh, about um, death in quite the way that we do, <laughs> that the, the people who are not conscious of dying, although we're all of us dying a little bit every moment you know so one could tell lots of stories about people who wait until all their visitors have gone home from the hospital before they die, yeah. or people who wait until after somebody's birthday or after Christmas to die, or, you know, the the, the psychological factors. Mm. I remember when my father died, he continued to live abroad after all these tragedies and things, and when he was in his 80th year, I got a telephone call to say he wasn't expected to last very long, so... I flew out, and my brother, who was then in Australia, flew out and we went to see my father. He was a man of the most beautiful courtesy, for whom the idea of dying while he had visitors was out of the question, so he stayed alive while we sat next to him you know, for all those days and days and days, and then I had to get back because I had students to look after. I was teaching at Oxford at the time. I really had to get back. I said to him, I'm going to go back to the UK, and then I'll come out again as soon as uh, term is over. He said, absolutely. And when I landed at Heathrow, there was a message to say that he had died. Now, what he, what he was doing very kindly was waiting for me to you know push off, and really he want, then he could get on with it himself. And and I honour that. I mean, I think that was uh, you know I, I sort of understand that and accept it. That experience of being able to say goodbye to somebody and share their last days with them that's wonderfully strengthening. I think it's a very good thing to share. somebody's you know they're passing if you can be with them it's a very good thing to see the body not 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 to hide away from that but to to recognize it and to be be present with it and so on that that's a very good thing as well this business of hiding away from it and not not trying not to see it trying to pretend that death is not Mm. a part of life is a mistake and i think we make ourselves suffer more as a result because we don't therefore grieve properly or understand its place properly
1: Thank you. I mean, you've really answered the second question, which is what, what could we do better? So thank you very much. Um, Professor A.C. Grayling, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you very much. It's
0: lovely to meet you.
2: This is Becky from Tongue, as you probably know, because you've heard a lot of me in this series. And I wanted to talk about my granny who died in 2016. I was away working, actually, in Malawi. I was away for a month. And about two weeks into my trip, I heard from my brother that he'd seen my granny and she wasn't doing well. Um, And I spoke to my dad... Because I was worried that perhaps she was coming to the end of her life and and that maybe we would consider cutting our trip and coming back so we could see her. Um, I spoke to him, and he kind of reassured me that that it wasn't that bad as it turned out, I got back, and the day after I got back, I went to see her. she was in a hospice at this point and I was the last person in my family to see her because she died the next day. And I felt like it was a kind of unsatisfactory moment really in a way when I saw her because she really wasn't that well and she wasn't up for being visited. But I felt like she was really present, like she knew I was there and she knew I'd been in Malawi and we had a little chat. Um, And I was really grateful that she'd hung on so that I could see her and kind of was able to say goodbye to her. And she was such an important person in my life. She was very present as a grandparent when I was little. We spent loads and loads of time with her. She was an amazing cook. Um, She was warm. Um, She was so loving and caring and generous. And she was, um, she used to give everyone funny nicknames, um, which is a habit that I picked up from her. And she also loved sort of saucy rhymes, uh, things which were really sort of funny coming out of her mouth because she was like a, you know, sweet old lady. But after she died, I really felt kind of pretty devastated by the loss of her. I remember I went to see this film, Arrival, which is this kind of like really amazing it's sort of science fiction film, but it's much more emotional than that. And it's about life and linear linear narratives of, that exist in life and love and relationships and loss. Um, and I remember being kind of wildly affected by that film and really, really moved and upset by it. And I think that I connected in some ways with the grief of losing my grandparent, two other griefs griefs that I'd experienced that perhaps I hadn't kind of properly fully connected with before that. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Still to come in the series, we've got interviews coming up with Catherine Mannix, Alan de Botton and Speech de Bell. Earlier on in the series, we spoke to Max Porter, Darren Brown, Kevin Young and Dame Sue Black. So make sure you go back and check those out if you haven't already. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dead Club podcast on Apple, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.